I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. In 2014, Ebola devastated three countries in West Africa. What can we learn from that epidemic? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Paul Farmer was the world's best-known medical anthropologist. He was also a medical doctor who worked in Haiti, Peru, and Africa. Tragically, Dr. Farmer died earlier this year, and we offer this show in memoriam. His organization, Partners in Health, is renowned for working in under-resourced areas. Despite his death, it continues working in the U.S. What's it doing to help fight COVID-19? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, we talk with the author of Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... Doctors in the Netherlands are studying an unlikely treatment for severe COVID-19. They're giving hospitalized patients with fluid in their lungs a cancer drug called imatinib. It may be better known by its brand name, Gleevec. It was one of the first breakthroughs against chronic myelogenous leukemia and has transformed the treatment of other leukemias as well, along with gastrointestinal stromal tumors. Dutch doctors noted that it helps keep blood vessels from leaking when they're inflamed. A placebo-controlled trial showed that COVID patients getting imatinib were less likely to die within three months. They also required fewer days of invasive ventilation and less supplemental oxygen. Altogether, there were 385 patients with severe COVID in both arms of the study. At 90 days, 9% of those on imatinib and 16% of those on placebo had died. This difference is significant. It appears that Gleevec may have a new role in the treatment of severe COVID-19. Face masks have become highly politicized in the fight against COVID-19. That's too bad because they've been shown to be quite effective in reducing transmission of the coronavirus. Now, researchers from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, report another potential benefit of masking. Even if masks do not completely block viral transmission of SARS-CoV-2, they reduce the amount of virus a person inhales. As a result, people are less likely to become severely ill and require hospitalization. When the viral load is low, the immune system can respond more effectively and create antibodies that are capable of defeating the infection before it causes severe damage. This research has important implications for future COVID variants, as well as other respiratory infections. When people think of breakthrough cancer treatments, they probably imagine immunotherapy or some other high-tech pharmaceutical. A new study published in the journal Pharmacology and Therapeutics demonstrates that sustained-release capsaicin formulations have potent anti-cancer activity. Capsaicin is the compound that gives chili peppers their heat. Ordinary capsaicin has a few drawbacks, though. Many people find the spicy taste unbearable. In addition, capsaicin is not very soluble and not well-absorbed encapsulating the hot spice in special extended-release drug formulations 
allows for pharmacologic doses to be administered. The investigators believe that cancers of the liver, breast, pancreas, and prostate might be responsive to capsaicin. Depression is challenging to treat during the best of times. During the pandemic, it's been especially difficult. That's because the therapists have been overwhelmed with cases, and Zoom therapy is not always an ideal setting for everyone. That's why a small study from Australia is so interesting. The researchers recruited young men between 18 and 25 years of age who were suffering from moderate to severe depression. They assigned the 72 men at random to follow a Mediterranean diet or to get befriending therapy for three months. Those receiving befriending therapy served as the control group. The young men following a Mediterranean diet were asked to concentrate on eating legumes, colorful vegetables, nuts, oily fish, and whole grains, and to use olive oil in their cooking. At the end of the study, the people who had followed a Mediterranean diet had lower depression scores and better quality of life scores, as well as higher scores measuring adherence to a Mediterranean diet. The investigators note that emerging adulthood also offers an opportunity for early lifestyle interventions, such as dietary change, as many are learning to cook and are taking control of their food choices for the first time. They conclude these dietary improvements lead to significant improvements in depressive symptoms with no observed side effects. The lead author remarked, We were surprised by how willing the young men were to take on a new diet. Those assigned to the Mediterranean diet were able to significantly change their original diets under the guidance of a nutritionist over a short time frame. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. The following interview with Dr. Paul Farmer was originally broadcast in January 2021. He was a friend and a former student who died unexpectedly in February 2022. We offer this show in memoriam. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The world was not prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic. It should have been. There have been warnings well before this that an infection could spread. One of them was the epidemic of Ebola virus in West Africa. What should we have learned from that tragedy? We're honored today to be talking with Dr. Paul Farmer. He is the Cola Catroni's University Professor and Chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also Chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Co-Founder and Chief Strategist of Partners in Health. Dr. Farmer is the author of several books, including Partner to the Poor, Haiti After the Earthquake, and his latest, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Paul Farmer. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Terry. Dr. Paul Farmer, it is such an honor to talk with the world's foremost medical anthropologist, and, and you're also a medical doctor, chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Can you please tell us how you happen to take such an unusual path? Well, I can. It should be familiar to Terry. 
Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I was an undergraduate at Duke University from 1978 to 82. And uh, for reasons that we could explore but don't have a lot of profundity, said I wanted to be a doctor like a whole bunch of other aspiring, <laughs> those aspirant to the middle class professions. And uh, so I was taking uh, classes that had the M word in it, medical. I took medical ethics. And there was a new one called medical anthropology. I really didn't know what medical anthropology was at the time. And, uh, and one of the two professors uh, was Terry Graydon. And uh, that was a revelation to me. And I thought, this is what I would like to do with my life, be a physician who's also an anthropologist. And, uh, you know, that that is no exaggeration. It's one that I can say to my students to this day is, you know, that I got involved in this in the classroom. So thank you, Terry. <laughs> well, I am I am just so thrilled to have seen what you have done with your medical anthropology and your MD background. You're a co-founder of an organization called Partners in Health. Some people have heard of it and are very familiar with it. Others are not. Would you explain to us, please, what this organization does and what sets it apart? Well, um, it's an organization that we started uh, when we were quite young, a group of us, mostly Haitian and Americans, one English woman. And the reason it came into being was, in large part, Haiti. I had uh, ended up in Haiti uh, after college and before medical school. Um, maybe Terry wrote one of my letters of recommendation. Um, she certainly did for med school. And... Uh, you know, I, I just saw things there that I, I feel that I was prepared to see, uh, but with which I was quite unfamiliar. And, you know, I had in going there as a 23-year-old with no real experience or skills, I had walked into a medical desert, uh, into an area of central Haiti uh, in which the community I lived in and still am living in is was created by uh a hydroelectric dam that flooded a valley and displaced the population. And so I was really uh, had my first extended experience outside of the United States in a, you know, in a, in a medical desert. And uh, that has shaped my life and certainly shaped Partners in Health's beginnings. And, you know, one of the things that uh, may set Partners in Health apart is this focus on people who've been shut out of medical progress. Uh, and there were and remain many, but with a focus on providing the services that they were asking for, the clinical and educational services they were asking for. In other words, not ignoring what they were saying. And so we came together and started with a clinic and it grew into a hospital and more clinics and more hospitals and from Haiti to Peru and even Siberia. Um, and so now we're we're operating a, a couple hundred uh, hospitals in the world, uh, a lot of them on the continent of Africa, uh, many in Haiti, uh, and involved in health education. We founded a university to focus on health equity, and uh, and that's really, you know, that's really how w what Partners in Health does. It provides services to those who haven't previously enjoyed them. It tries to understand structural violence, how 
colonial rule, poverty, inequality, racism, gender inequality, how these get in the body and how they can be either gotten out or, you know, kept out. So, you know, I know that's not a, a short answer, but, you know, it's uh, Partners in Health does not seek to be unusual or apart, but rather to also uh, shape the discussions about health and social justice in the world today. And, and, uh, and really, that's where we are now in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Exactly. And it's also an integral part of your discussion of the Ebola epidemic in fevers, feuds, and diamonds. The term medical desert that you just used describing central Haiti when you were there in between college and and, uh, medical school is one that you also use describing Upper West Africa when the Ebola epidemic started. Would you just briefly say, what is medical desert? You know, um, a medical desert is a place where there is not the staff stuff, space, and systems you need to provide medical care and preventive public health services. So the staff, you know, of course, that's doctors and nurses, but also pharmacists, uh, managers, engineers, uh, community health workers, perhaps most importantly, the stuff, medical supplies, things that you would need to uh, run a hospital or a clinic or a public health campaign. Uh, the space, which is also absent usually from a medical desert, is a clinic or a hospital uh, or a health post. And the systems, well, you know, the systems we can talk about, but what we're struggling right now with in the United States around COVID is a real systems problem, right? Like, how are we going to vaccinate 100 million people in 100 days? You know, that's a systems challenge that requires staff stuff and space as well. So what I meant by medical desert, which I don't regard as a particularly original term, is that these are the places where you can't really practice medicine. And by medicine, of course, I mean medicine in the broadest sense. And uh, what do you do with a desert? Well, you irrigate it or you, you, you appreciate its beauty if you don't have to live in it and survive in it. But otherwise, you have to really learn how to irrigate those deserts. And uh, and that's even a shorter and better description of what Partners in Health tries to do. I knew, for example, that that there's no there was no point in me trying to go to Upper West Africa without staff stuff, space, and systems, because this is always teamwork that requires lots of investments sustained over time. Paul, in your new book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, you you talk about the Ebola epidemic of 2014. For many of our listeners, Ebola sounds far away, long ago, exotic. Can you just share briefly what is Ebola? Absolutely. Well, Ebola is a viral disease caused by a pathogen, you know, like uh, the coronavirus. It, uh, happily, it's not airborne. Uh, but it causes a systemic illness, like many viral afflictions. Um, and without the right care, it's usually fatal. It causes uh, a brisk uh, gastrointestinal syndrome with diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, of course, fever, um, and uh, really can take people out just through those basic mechanisms, which are very familiar to nurses and, and doctors. Um, and uh, it's it's sometimes held to be an acute disease, but like COVID, uh, its uh, complications can stutter on, and some of those are discussed in the book. 
But the thing that I, and it, it comes from an animal, maybe a bat, like a lot of other pathogens. So it's a zoonosis also. Um, and it has largely afflicted the forested or rapidly deforested parts of Central Africa and other parts in Africa and in, in small and explosive outbreaks with uh, high loss of life. But again, they're in the medical desert. So in the medical desert, you don't know whether or not someone's dying from inattention or from the virulence of a pathogen. And uh, we suspected and still suspect that it, most of the deaths were related to medical inattention. Paul, in the very first chapter of your book, you describe the reaction of the uh, international organizations that did respond, lots didn't, uh, to the developing Ebola epidemic. And what you say is they were focused on containing it, not caring. What would you have preferred to see them doing? I would prefer to do uh, a thorough integration of prevention and care. And and we're, we were familiar with that debate from many other many others in public health, from AIDS to now COVID. We have to integrate prevention, but also to care for the critically ill and injured. And, uh, and that's the challenge again and again in, uh, in seeking to work effectively in the clinical desert. You're listening to Dr. Paul Farmer. He's Colicatroni's university professor and chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and co-founder and chief strategist of PIH. Dr. Farmer is the author of several books, including Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. After the break, find out how the Ebola epidemic affected clinicians in West Africa. Some American healthcare providers came down with Ebola and were evacuated to the U.S. What happened then? What lessons can we learn from the Ebola epidemic to help us deal with COVID-19? Both in Sierra Leone during Ebola and in the U.S. during COVID, people don't trust the healthcare system. What should organizations do to earn back trust? How has the African country of Rwanda fared with COVID-19? What might we learn from them? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. 
The following interview with Dr. Paul Farmer was originally broadcast in January 2021. He was a friend and former student who died unexpectedly in February 2022. We offer this show in memoriam. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Memory Plus, a cocoflavanol supplement backed by four clinical studies that show significant improvement in three different aspects of memory. More information at cocovia.com. What can medical anthropology teach us about human behavior and epidemics? How could this knowledge help us deal with COVID-19 more effectively? Our distinguished guest is Dr. Paul Farmer, Chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's co-founder and chief strategist of PIH. His book is Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. Dr. Paul Farmer, Ebola is a really dangerous virus. I mean, it kills a lot of people who contract it. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your colleague, Humar Khan, please? Sure. I mean, Humar Khan uh, was one of the very few uh, Sierra Leoneans uh, I knew at all prior to going to that country, which is a very interesting place, as you might imagine. And, and uh, as Terry may recall, one of the things that I said in my foolish youth was that I wanted to be a doctor and work in West Africa. Again, I had no skills or particular training to say these things. And as chance would have it, uh, I didn't go to West Africa until, you know, I went there for varied reasons, a medical conference here, you know, a, a, uh, it was really more academic in, in that sense and uh, ended up in Haiti instead. And, and when I finally did, when we finally did get to Africa. It was the other side of the country, Rwanda, and then later Malawi and Lesotho. But I only knew uh, a couple of people. One of them was a, a, a youngish infectious disease doctor named Humar Khan, who, uh, who helped to, who worked on a disease called Lassa. And I was only hesitating because I didn't know if we wanted to go into that kind of detail. But um, he had been scheduled to to spend the 2014-2015 academic year at Harvard with a former student of mine who's a great scientist named Party Sabedi. She she shows up in the book as well. And uh, you know, so it was more of an acquaintance uh than a than a or a colleague than a than a friend. But in the summer of 2014, he was on the front lines uh as this new uh epidemic, Ebola. Uh, surged through uh, eastern Sierra Leone, and uh, he was in harm's way and knew it. Um, and but he had been named the national Ebola czar, as might be expected. I mean, there are very few doctors who made it through the war. In his case, uh, he was a refugee during the war, like so many others. And um, you know, seeing him in harm's way after my very first trip to Sierra Leone in June of 2014 and knowing we really couldn't do anything to to help him or save him uh was pretty discouraging i was watching this from rwanda and and sure enough uh he died in 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 july at the end of july 2014 uh and was 
you know, this was a major loss in Sierra Leone, but it was also uh, echoed across the continent and, and across the world because, you know, he had he had died, you know, trying to defend uh, his patients, his community, his country from Ebola. So that's just he shows up in in the book in a number of instances. But it was a it was a very uh, it was difficult to watch from afar, and I'm sure it was a lot worse to watch up close. Uh, but it was a great loss, and one of many in the end, close to a thousand nurses, doctors, and other healthcare professionals and would die in West Africa of this during this outbreak. Well, I actually want to follow up with you on that because you point out that uh, there were a few Americans and Europeans who also contracted Ebola. And the ones who were evacuated to the U.S. or to Europe mostly survived. Now, theoretically, we don't have any you know, magic potion against Ebola. Why'd they survive? Well, you know, this has been, that was one of the hardest uh, parts of this epidemic, but it's common to every epidemic that I've seen. Uh, and that is social inequalities uh, determine not only the spread of a transmissible pathogen like this, but also its outcome. And if the symptoms uh, and the therapies match, uh, then we found uh, that we can save most Ebola patients. And the symptoms that I mentioned, fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, these are symptoms for which we don't have a, uh, or signs for which we don't have a magic potion, but we know what to do. Uh, we know how to resuscitate people who uh, need fluids and electrolytes. And alas, that too rarely happened uh, in West Africa, in part because the professional caregivers were afraid, but not so afraid, as we know from Humar Khan's case and many others, that they would try their best. Um, but the, their best required more in the way of other staff and stuff and safer space in which to work. So when people were lifted, airlifted, as you point out, out of the medical desert and into places like uh, the United States or, uh, or Europe, they did receive that basic supportive and, if necessary, critical care. And uh, no, no American died of Ebola. And, and uh, very, very few white uh, Europeans of any description uh, did either. But it didn't matter what color you were if you were airlifted out. Your chances of survival uh, were, were high if you could get out of the medical desert. And that's why so many of us ardently wished that uh, Humar Khan could have been airlifted. Of course, I, I don't feel differently about any patient I saw during those years who uh, was dying and we didn't have the, the tools at hand to save his or her life. And, and you know, it would have been great to have a, pl a safe place to send them for uh, proper medical care. Paul, there are some parallels between what you're describing with Ebola in West Africa and what's happening around the world now with with COVID-19? And, and even in this country, a lot of health professionals have died as a result of their interaction with this virus. And there are places where people are far more vulnerable and are dying at a much higher rate than other places. Can you give us your sense of, of this relationship and what you learned with Ebola to what is now happening, for example, in California, I mean, we talk a lot about flattening the curve. 
but um, things melted in West Africa in the middle of Ebola. There was not much that the health services could provide. And we're seeing some similar issues going on now in California in those emergency rooms and in the ICUs. It's been very difficult to watch this play out over the last year um, for lots of reasons. First, and I hope we'll get back to this, Joe, you know, having spent a little bit of time in Rwanda during the course of the COVID epidemic, you know, it's been impressive to see even with not much in the way of money and certainly a shortage of staff and stuff, the Rwandans have managed to mount a pretty impressive response to COVID and have had very few cases and among the cases a much lower rate of death um, than in the United States. So I, I hope we'll get a chance to go back. But if I look for some big pattern, the one that I described in the book, and it's true, we did not flatten the curve in West Africa. We were using all those same uh, terms and aspirations there as well. We didn't flatten the curve, as you point out. Uh, and in the United States, uh, we're not seeing this control over care mania that you see in the former colonies and particularly on the continent of Africa. Uh, we're seeing an inattention to containment, right? And uh, and one of the reasons we've done so poorly, is, many have commented on the lack of national leadership and and that's been striking. But we also have a terribly patchwork system of healthcare delivery and a very underfunded public health infrastructure. You, you, the both both of you have written about this and talked about this for many years. So we are suffering not control over care as the West Africans did during Ebola, but a a real containment failure. And uh, you know, masks are just a symbol of how you can politicize a containment effort. I didn't see that coming. I should have, and, and others, more attentive anthropologists, might. But I think we're we're living uh, in the, a hell of our own creation. That is, we have a very patchwork neoliberal healthcare delivery system that focuses on illness and injury, uh, and not on wellness and prevention. And uh, you know that's very different from what we saw in West Africa, where there was little ability to focus on either. Well, I'd like to come back to the Rwanda conversation, but first I'd like to ask you about something that was true in West Africa and is true in the United States. And the word is mistrust. I mean, the people in West Africa, they didn't really trust the government. They 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 had some great reservations. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. who don't trust the government, don't want to wear a mask don't want to follow some of the public health guidelines. That similarity was was very striking to me. It's striking to me, too. And, and, and believe it or not, it lends a certain confidence uh, to me because I have seen again and again in the course of the last 30 or 40 years how we can address mistrust through service. Like if you're living, say you're a nurse living in a village in uh, rural Haiti, uh, and you have the staff stuff, space and systems, you need to do your work, the amount of mistrust, even if you're a public health nurse who represents the government, the amount of mistrust, of course, wanes with visible evidence of service to a community. I've seen this everywhere I have gone. And that includes working with prisoners in Siberia, with you know prisoners with tuberculosis, in uh, rural areas of post-genocide Rwanda, in post-Civil War Peru, 
and even in North Carolina, you know, you've seen how service and particularly humble and effective service can miss can diminish mistrust. But but we were dealing with an epidemic of mistrust in West Africa. And and one of the things that struck me, you know, in in working in a couple parts of Sierra Leone was how quickly you could build trust uh, through provision of those services. And since we're supposed to do that, that anyway, provide those services, you know, it seemed to me that uh, this was a somewhat optimistic message. And, uh, and, and that's been our experience uh, in, in settings across the world. Paul, I wonder if we could step back to Rwanda just for uh, a, a couple minutes. And can you tell us how Rwanda was able, has been able, and is still facing the uh, COVID pandemic in ways that make for better outcomes than our unbelievably well-to-do country? Well, you know, um, one of the reasons is probably prosaic. Rwanda had just faced an Ebola uh, risk on its western flank. Many of the documented Ebola epidemics in the world have been in the Congo and Rwanda abuts uh, the DRC in its western flank. And there had been uh, a lot of efforts to muster the staff stuff, space, and systems required to prevent its incursion. And happily, unlike in West Africa a few years earlier, there was a vaccine. So let's attribute some of their success to that recent experience. You know, when when uh, when we hear the incoming administration in the United States call for 100,000 contact tracers of public health workers, that's really not a lot for a big country of 330 million people. Rwanda probably mustered 100,000 contact tracers and community health workers already, uh, and they're about 12 million people. So they've put, they've invested more. But another part that I want to say, uh, that I want to underline, is that uh, they also have a national healthcare system. They have national health insurance. They have a public sector healthcare system that, you know, that has woven that safety net uh, and is trying to continue to to reinforce it. And of course, we haven't seen that in the United States in a long time. Uh, I hope we're about to see it now, but but there are probably many reasons. Notice that I haven't brought up the ones that are usually invoked, like a younger population, maybe some genetic protection. We have no reason to believe in the latter as a as a uh, a reason yet. And even uh, the question of the age structure um, among those elderly uh, who have contracted COVID, they've still had lower death rates. So I think there are lots of reasons, just as there are lots of reasons for our failure, but good leadership, a national health insurance system, uh, some familiarity perhaps with other infectious threats or more intimate familiarity than we have here. Uh, but I, I would continue to underline the need for this national safety net uh, with that, that applies to all in the United States, and we still don't have that. Paul, there has been tremendous variability around the world in terms of the ability to get control of this virus. So if you look at places like New Zealand, as a, for example, and um, Taiwan, and even China, for that matter, 
they have somehow managed to slow the spread in ways that we have not been able to here. And you've mentioned Rwanda. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy between countries? Well, you know, a lot of anthropologists would be quick to point out cultural differences and, you know, even cultural differences about masks, mask wearing, which was, which prior to COVID and perhaps related to SARS or, Mer or other pathogens, uh, mask wearing uh, was uh, common in large parts of Asia uh, and, not, and not here. But I don't think we should go right to cultural explanations for very materially different circumstances. So I would, I would try to take each one of those cases one by one and learn from them. Taiwan, China, uh, or big China, New Zealand. And I would also add that, you know, if you look at the Chinese response, uh, it has been so much more coherent. Uh, it's certainly been more, uh, some people would say draconian, but, you know, the, 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 pandemic is obviously draconian as well. But, you know, you look at mask wearing, uptake of mask wearing, contact tracing, social distancing, all the things that we've been yammering on about from the very beginning and have discussed in previous respiratory pathogens, those were uh, widely taken up and mandated in China, and they, they, they haven't been here. Um, New Zealand is a different story, um, and uh, but they do have a national health approach and a national health system and have more social co cohesion, we, we, we read, than you would see in, in the United States. But again, I think we should be cautious about re ready attribution of uh, broadly social differences just to culture or, uh, you know, or just to any one thing. You're listening to Dr. Paul Farmer. He's Colocatronis University professor and Chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and Co-Founder and Chief Strategist of Partners in Health. His new book is Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. After the break, find out what diamonds have to do with Ebola. Dr. Larry Brilliant has said outbreaks are inevitable, but pandemics are optional. Dr. Paul Farmer tells us why. Partners in Health is accustomed to working overseas. What is Partners in Health doing to help with COVID-19 in the U.S.? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients. Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at kayabiotics.com. The following interview with Dr. Paul Farmer was originally broadcast in January 2021. He was a friend and former student of Terry who died unexpectedly in February 2022. We offer this show in memoriam.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, the plant-based nutrients from fresh cocoa that help support memory. More information at cocovia.com. Today, our topic is how social and economic conditions affect the spread of infections. Our guest today is the world's foremost medical anthropologist. He's also a medical doctor who has worked in places where medical resources are scarce. We're talking with Dr. Paul Farmer. He's Colacatroni's university professor and chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and co founder and chief strategist of PIH. Dr. Paul Farmer is the author of several books, including his latest, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds Ebola and the Ravages of History. Paul, you have titled your book Fever, Feuds, and Diamonds, and we've talked about some. What about the ravages of war? We've definitely talked about fever, but what do diamonds have to do with it? Well, I'm glad you asked that. You know, diamonds in the title is a stand-in for the extractive trades. And what I mean by that are the obvious things like mining, uh, whether of gold, diamonds, other precious minerals, uh, timber, Uh, And, of course, underlying that is the extraction of the slave trades, particularly the transatlantic slave trades. Um, So it's sort of a metaphor, but it's also not a metaphor. Uh, You know, diamonds were discovered in Sierra Leone in the 1920s and uh, rapidly became the item most sought to extract, but also a source of enormous wealth. Uh, but very little of that wealth, of course, uh, remained in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone was at the time a British colony and uh, was until 1961, I think. And But afterwards, it was more of the same. The extraction uh, enriched small numbers of people, many of them not in Sierra Leone, some uh, in Sierra Leone, uh, and, uh, and were really the undergirding and fuel for a massive and vicious civil war that spread from Liberia to Sierra Leone and uh, really uh, reached all of the surrounding countries as well. So this was one of the largest, uh, deadliest civil wars in recent memory. Um, and, you know, I remember it, uh, Blood Diamonds. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, really ended only a decade before Ebola showed up to threaten well-being once again. So that was what I intended with the both metaphor and something decidedly not metaphoric, which is the extractive traits. Paul, you you quote Dr. Larry Brilliant in your book, uh, remarking on the Ebola crisis in, ni- in 2014, quote, outbreaks are inevitable, pandemics are optional. Do you agree? And how might the current pandemic have been avoided? I definitely, I definitely agree. There's something really uh, a nub of something really important there, and that's a reminder that humans are never going to be free of infectious assaults. 
our immune systems are largely a response to viral and bacterial and parasitic invasions. Uh, we're tied together, as, as I think more and more folks know, and sometimes uh, those pathogens will cause human disease and spread to others, an epidemic, in other words. But a pandemic uh, in which a pathogen, and it's often a virus, spread, spreads untrammeled across the world that we can stop. And we, you know, there's a lot that could have been done perhaps a uh, hundred years ago during the last great respiratory uh, pandemic. Uh, and some was done. And, and by the way, the, the interventions look a lot like what we uh, see now, social distancing, school closures, business closures, all the things that, of course, humans don't care for. Um, none of us do. But uh, mask wearing, which was also debated 100 years ago and, and often rather uncivilly, right? So um, there's so much that could be done. And again, we have the examples you gave, Joe, uh, China, uh, New Zealand, that show that epidemics that are part of pandemics can be brought under control. And I, I know that's what Larry Brilliant meant by saying it's optional to let it go and spread like this. And whenever we heard Trump administration authorities talking about waiting for herd immunity through natural infection, you know, that caused a big chill uh, among many infectious disease experts and, and public health experts. That's not the way to stop uh, a pandemic, just to wait for people to get sick and those who die, die, and those who survive are immune. Right. One of the tools that you have mentioned briefly that we have used so sparingly in this country is contact tracing. Right. Can you tell us what that is? And then I want to ask about Partners in Health helping the U.S., a few states, learn to do it properly. So contact tracing uh, is not any more mysteriously than it, than it sounds. You know, viruses have to have a host, right? So their transmission uh, from person to person requires contact, very uh, usually a close contact. Um, some viruses you can pick up from a surface, but for a respiratory uh, pathogen like this, uh, with virus expelled, you know, maybe six feet, maybe more, maybe less, you know, requires more intimate connection. And those are your contacts. So, for example, I'm home with my family, living in the same house, uh, in a pod, as they say. We're each other's contacts. And uh, were one of us to fall ill, uh, then each of us would be on that contact list. And uh, when we try to do that work, it requires, as you helped to teach me when I was a college student, it requires talking to people. Like, who have you been around? Um, any ideas? Uh, but the main way to make it work is to make it clear that the reason for this inquiry, this tracing, is to care for people, uh, to make it clear that we're out to protect them and their families uh, and their neighbors and anyone else they come into contact with. So it requires a lot of work for every, say, say you get a COVID re uh, result, a positive result, and it goes to a contact tracer. The job of the contact tracer, is, and this is largely virtual, right, on the phone or some other medium like that, whereas with Ebola, these were often face-to-face -face interviews. You're trying to figure out who that person may have been in contact with in order to offer what we've been calling supportive isolation. You know, when you have to go 
uh, off by yourself into a room or an apartment or a hotel converted into a isolation center, you know, who's going to feed you? Who's going to care for you? Who's going to look out for your dog or your cat or your kids? All the other things that you were doing, uh, that requires the support part. So once again, it's staff, uh, stuff, space, systems, and support, I should say. And that's what contact tracing is. You know, if you look for an average of five or six contacts per person, as as we're often finding here, you you still have to compare that to efforts in Asia, including in in China, um, where they're 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 really looking at much larger social networks than than we are in our contact tracing. But as you said, there's been a lot of resistance to it and a failure to fund it. This has been going on for decades. Uh, and, and so what we need to do now is not give up on contact tracing because we're doing so badly, but to start it again and start it everywhere. And yes, we will fail many times because there'll be too many contacts and a big outbreak, but we still have to do that in order to get down from this mountain of disease that we're, we're, we're on top of right now in the United States. We have to invest. And, uh, in some of the places we work, uh, as partners in health, we have experience with this, uh, whether we're tracing contacts in a tuberculosis outbreak or an Ebola outbreak. You know, Partners in Health has been doing this with community health workers for almost 40 years. Well, Paul, you know, that that's what's so fascinating to me, because when we think about Partners in Health, we think about West Africa, we think about Peru, we think about Haiti. We don't think about Partners in Health working in the United States. Can you tell us what you've been doing here? Sure, you know I don't I, I don't say this with a lot of, of pride. Uh, you're right. We we don't have that reputation, and that's that's our bad because you know Partners in Health's headquarters, if that's the term, does sit in the United States, um, and we have a lot of problems in this country that would be addressed by many of these interventions. We've done some of them before in the Boston area. We've worked with Navajo Nation for the last do- dozen years. But most of the great majority of our work is is in Haiti and on the continent of Africa and sometimes elsewhere in Latin America. And um, with the beginning of the COVID outbreak, um, our, one of the PIH founders, uh, Jim Kim, who's also a medical anthropologist, a physician anthropologist, and not very shy, uh, began pushing uh, everyone he could to pay attention to experience elsewhere. Uh, particularly in Asia, where there had been a rapid turnaround or looked to be one emerging or possible, in part because of contact tracing, which was really almost absent in the United States. And in April, he called the governor of Massachusetts, uh, Governor Charlie Baker, and uh, and pushed uh, to have Partners in Health join with the public authorities to launch a major contact tracing initiative. And I've already, as I've already said, all contact tracing needs to be accompanied with massive social support, generous, kind-hearted, compassionate social support. And so it's not a small undertaking, but uh, I'd like to think it's one of the reasons uh, that the initial spring surge in, uh, in Massachusetts uh, was at least brought under control. Um, and uh, and we've been working with other places in the United States, city of Newark, with a, a group in uh, largely migrant farm workers uh, in Florida. And we've been, we hope, helpful in a couple of other states as well. 
Paul, when we look at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic here in the U.S., we see enormous inequities. In the U.S., we have essential workers, people who make minimum wage, if that sometimes. They don't have sick leave. They often may not have access to child care. And along with the healthcare workers, they have really borne the brunt of this infection. When we look around the world now, we see that wealthy countries like the United States are buying up all the vaccine. And um, the former president of Liberia, I think I, Liberia, Ellen yep, Johnson right. Sirleaf, recently said that she was alarmed that uh, there wouldn't be any vaccine left for West Africa. How can we make sure that medical resources that we all need are distributed more equitably? Well, here's where we go back to Larry Brilliant's aphorism, you know, that uh, pandemics are optional. They will continue to be uh, a problem you know, what is a pandemic? It's something that starts in one place and ends up everywhere. And so uh, there's every reason, as as you both know, to make sure that our focus really is on global distribution. Are we surprised by the role of nationalism uh, in trying to hoard uh, vaccines? No, um, we're not surprised. But this will be ultimately uh, self-defeating, right? Just as with polio, measles, you know, on and on, you know, the, the reservoirs for pandemics uh, are out there. And, you know, global vaccine dis- distribution is really the way to, uh, to address them. Now, we're, where we're looking right now, um, we're seeing no more than 20% coverage uh, likely in the coming year in much of the world. And that world is the part of the world that the former Liberian president is concerned about the poorer reaches of the world, including Liberia. So we have a lot of work to do. There have to be multi-national uh, institutions. There are several around vaccine distribution already. Uh, there's a new initiative uh, called COVAX. But again, it's with that math that I'm saying we're really uh, nowhere near where we need to, to be. I'm hoping that uh, there are a number of ways to move this uh, agenda forward. One I mentioned already is the public health institutions of our world were really founded to protect international commerce, right? The Pan American Health Organization, later the World Health Organization. They may have been dressed up in other terms, the terms of, of basic rights, but savvy business people and commerce people have known for time immemorial that these are, we have to prevent uh, yellow fever, cholera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where these institutions come from. And now we're going to have to beef them up, uh, including the World Health Organization. I mean, the Trump administration, as you know, pulled out of the World Health Organization. We can't have that in the middle of a pandemic or ever, as far as I'm concerned. But part of what we need to do is to pony up the kind of resources uh, that are required to have a massive worldwide campaign. Do we have those resources in the world? Of course we do. Um, Will it be difficult to extract them from those who are hoarding them? Yes, it will. But uh, I think we have, with a pandemic, more of a green light um, than we've had in the past. And I hope that's true for a lot of the social 
safety net needs we have in this country as well, including the things, Terry, that you mentioned, unemployment insurance, uh, a, a fair uh, minimum wage. We're nowhere near that yet, as you said. These are part of a national attempt to uh, address COVID. And then when I say national attempt, I'm talking about the global vaccine response has to be part of national attempts. And the United States has often been the largest funder of many of these initiatives and and should go and return to that position uh, and and mm-hmm. rejoin the the international community of public health. Uh, now, again, not, I'm not saying we've really left it. I'm saying we've had some scary symbolism about leaving it, but we can't do that ever, and certainly not in the middle of a pandemic. Dr. Paul Farmer, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It's been an honor. Great to be with you again, both of you. You've been listening to Dr. Paul Farmer. He's Colicotroni's university professor and chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and co-founder and chief strategist of Partners in Health. Dr. Farmer and his colleagues have pioneered novel community-based treatment strategies that demonstrate the delivery of high-quality health care in resource-poor settings. Dr. Farmer is the author of several books, including Pathologies of Power, Partner to the Poor, Haiti After the Earthquake, and To Repair the World. His latest is Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at cocovia.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website, peoplespharmacy.com, every Monday morning. You might want to share it with a friend. At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID and other important health stories. The whole world lost a friend when Dr. Paul Farmer died unexpectedly in February 2022 at age 62. At the time, he was in Rwanda at the University of Global Health Equity he had established through his worldwide nonprofit organization, Partners in Health. Dr. Farmer made a difference wherever he went. We miss him terribly, but know that his work lives on. To learn more about his life and work, please visit PIH.org. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.